Welcome to City Arts and Lectures, a season of talks and on-stage conversations with some of the most celebrated writers, artists and thinkers of our day. Recorded before an audience at the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco. Started three years ago in the media lab of California San Quentin Prison, the podcast Ear Hustle tells the daily realities of life inside prison, shared by those living it. On March 29, 2019, two of the podcast's creators, visual artist Nigel Poor and former inmate Erlon Woods, came to the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco to talk to Al Letson. After 21 years of incarceration, Erlon Woods' sentence had recently been commuted by Governor Jerry Brown. This was his first major public appearance since his release. Join me now for a conversation with Ear Hustle. Thank you. It's good to be here. Did you ever in your life imagine walking out to a stage and getting a, a welcome like that? I imagined it. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> Nigel? Hell no. <laughs> All right, so I, I, I want to play the first clip, because this is personal to me. Can, uh, can we get the first clip, please? So, Erlon, now that your own cell situation is up in the air, what did you take from that story? What, the story we just heard? Yeah. See, that's the type of I'm trying to avoid. What? That where it's confusion, chaos, and just craziness. Hmm. So what's your biggest fear about finding a Sally? I have several fears, but one of them is someone that talks too much, that's always talking. Every time you look around, he's talking, 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 through the TV shows. Talking when you walk in, talking when you get up in the morning. I hate that Your Sally who just left, Cleo Cloman, who was also known as Black, and from everything you told me, it seemed like he was a really great Sally for you. Yeah, and I think he feels the same way because I brought him down here and got him on tape right before he left. The first question is, having me as a Sally right. in the time that we spent in that cage, what is your thoughts on me? Oh, man. Um, I can honestly say first that you as my celly has been one of the best times of my incarceration. Um, first and foremost, the respect level is 100. It's genuine. This is a place where we lay our head, where we're supposed to be comfortable, where we're supposed to feel comfortable when we take a nap and a place to sleep. And when we wake up, we just do it all over again. And we enjoy each other, and most importantly, we leave the penitentiary out of the cell. If I was to describe uh, Mr. Cloman over here, I would say he's a well-disciplined person and a great thinker. Uh, I know many times I always come to him and be like, hey man, uh, I need your help on this. <laughs> and he got this little, this little whiteboard in the cell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He'll bust out the little Sharpie marker, the little, little uh, dry marker, and he'll just get to going, you know? He'll get to 
whatever issues I'm having problem with. And the brother's well-versed, too, especially when it comes to self-help groups and uh, smart brother, man. And that's, that's, that's what I get. And he, and he cool, hella cool. I don't know what I'm going to do when he leave. <laughs> um, to find a brother of your caliber, man, it's going to be hard. Yeah. I already know that. Okay, so Black's gone. You have a new celly that the prison put in with you, but you're still going to be looking around, right? Actually, it's a trip because <laughs> the celly that I have now is temporary. He's about to leave. I don't want a celly, but I got to go find one because if I leave it to custody, they'll just throw anybody in the cell with me, somebody that I'm not compatible with. So I have to find someone that I'm compatible with. And then on the other hand, you don't want to tell somebody something that you want to move them in the cell and then you change your mind like, oh, man, I ain't going to be able to do that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you tell the person, hey, man, what you doing, man? You know, you want to move up then? You be like, oh, I'm going to go get this dude over here. It's really like dating. I mean, some of the things that you talk, I know. It's not like dating, Nigel. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. A lot of similarities. So <laughs> I chose that clip because that was the moment when I listened to the pilot. I was like, I love this show. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> because first of all, when you talk about people talking too much, can I get an amen? Amen. Yes. Like, amen. Yeah. <laughs> And then secondly, um, so, so, so your personality is, is, is on display there. And, and I felt like, OK, so like I, I recognize him. I know him. That's, that's my peeps. But then when Nigel came in and said, it's kind of like dating, I was like, well, that's what I was thinking, too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, so um, but, but you don't think it's like dating at all? No, it's, 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 it's like a relationship, though. Is that what dating is? No, but not that type of dating, not that type of relationship. It's like a cool relationship. It has to be. And dating. It's like compatibility. Dating. Com compatible. <laughs> okay, so, so, so walk, walk me back. What was it like making that pilot episode? Ooh, it was um, the two brothers that were in there, um, Emil and his brother. Mm -hmm. That Eddie, Eddie. Eddie, that was interesting. You know, so they, we, the whole story was supposed to be, was it them? Right, they were the original idea. It was original, and then yeah. we was like, no, we got to add more in here. But so yeah. I think it was cool because it, it's, it's one of the things that we knew uh, this, if, if people in society never knew nothing about prison, they know something about living with a roommate especially if it's a family member. Right, and also we knew so little about making a podcast at that time that we we didn't know what the mistakes would be, so there wasn't, a, oddly, there wasn't a lot of fear. We, we really played around a lot, and that's really freeing. When you listen to it now, do you hear places that you feel, because you guys are on, you're getting ready to release season four, right? Yeah. Correct. So. Uh. Indeed. So you, you, you've, you've gotten your sea legs, so to speak. Uh, you, you know what the podcast is. So when you go back and listen to that pilot episode, are there things in it that you're like, oh, we would do that totally different now? Well, I hear things that I actually, in that particular clip that you played, that I feel really good about, and that is the relationship between E and myself and the way that we, can, we speak just like friends to each other, and there's a lot of humor. And I think people don't expect humor to be part of a podcast that comes out of a prison. And one of our desires is to really show that life inside is multidimensional. And so I think that that sense of camaraderie, of love between men in a, an appropriate relationship, you know, like all the, we get to talk about that in a way that's um, heartfelt and also humorous. 
and allows us to kind of rib each other a little bit. And so that's the stuff that I, I hope continues. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it was the first episode, so yeah. we thought it was easy. No, it, I never thought it was easy. I thought it was easy. Yeah, you did. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think you, you, I heard. You still think it's no, easy? No, so I heard Snap Judgment, and, and it was like, man, that's easy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and I didn't know that that 55 minutes or whatever it was came from like six hours of tape. Six hours? You know, I'm just saying. I would add more. But I mean, do you still think it's easy? No, I don't think it get easier at no. all. No, I think no, it I think, get harder. Yeah, I think the challenge is to make it sound easy, right. to make it sound effortless. Right. right. Yeah. So let, let, let's just backtrack a little yeah. bit, and 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 how do we get to that point? Um, how did you end up working in San Quentin? Mm -hmm. um, and you had been in other uh, prisons, prisons yeah. before you came to San Quentin. Right. Can you guys? So Nigel, let's start with you. Sure. Like, just backtrack me. Like, how do we get there? Yeah. So I started as a volunteer for the Prison Uni University Project. To, yes. One of the most wonderful organizations. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you go on along with that, great yeah. organization. Yes. Why did you go to that organization? Oh, like, what, okay. what was it the okay. thing that like made you better get question, involved? Better question. So I really wanted. I, I was interested in prisons. I'm interested in how people find meaning and make lives under difficult situations. And prison struck me as a place where there's just so many interesting and troubling things happening. And I didn't want to go in as a tourist. I mean, you can't do that. I wanted to go in and do something um, that gave me a reason to be there, right? And as I was thinking about prisons, I happened to hear about the Prison University Project. It kind of fell into my life. And I thought, this is a perfect way to go in and bring in something that I actually know how to do, which is photography, and talk about it, and use that as a bridge to, to get to you know, to start to understand life inside prison just a little bit. So it came from a desire, the Prison University Project out of the universe fell into my lap, and it was the perfect bridge to walk into prison with, mm -hmm. yeah. And there long? Well, when I got to San Quentin, it, was, it took a long time to get there because there, it wasn't like a prison that have an intake, a, because they have their own receiving, I mean, not receiving and release, their own uh, reception center. So when you're trying to get from Southern California up here, it was like, it was hard. Why, why were you trying to get up here? So when I was in Sentinella State Prison, which is next to Mexico and Arizona, they have the Discovery Channel, and the Discovery Channel showed um, San Quentin had a film school. And I was thinking, like, if a prison has a film school, they're thinking outside the box, so I want to be there. And um, it took about six years to get there, but I, I finally got there. Yeah. And they, Walk me through that a little bit. Is, is that like um, trying to transfer your job or trying to transfer to another college? Do you put in an application? <laughs> like, like, how does that work? So they have a point system. And my points, my, it's like I was a level three at the time, which is a higher custody. And my points had dropped to a level two, but they kept me there. So every year, uh, the prison has this thing called an annual. And you can go in there and be like, well, yeah, my points are dropped. I want to move to this prison. And then you will, about two weeks later, you will get a letter and a thing that say either you transferring or um, you're there retaining you there. And I kept getting retained. Mm -hmm. And it, it took some creative thinking to get me out of there. Is anybody in the audience from CDCR? <laughs> OK, I can't say how I got out of there. <laughs> 
You tell me after. <laughs> I'll tell you after. All right, so, so, so you get out of there. Get out of there. You um, get to San Quentin. No, so, no, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 okay, okay. I get out of there, and then they send me to this prison, Soledad. And then I was like, like, Wait, hold on. Everybody like made noises. Yeah, I, I was, I was like, it's this so, is so, not like, where I, I want to be. Soledad, like, and it's, a, it's a level two. No, it's it's a level two, but it was like not for. I was a close custody okay. uh, prisoner, where mean, which means uh, you have to have an electric gate around it. So uh, Soledad did not have one, so they didn't have night yard for people like me, and and it was just like a stressful place. So I was like, oh, I'd have messed up. And then just so happened they had a list on the wall saying. Uh, they opened a building in San Quentin. You can sign up and you can go. So I signed up and I was out of there. Wow. 67 days. Wow. Indeed. Yeah. So now, how did you two meet? So um, I was work after I taught for the Prison University Project for three semesters, I started volunteering in the media center, working on um, a radio project. And Erlon was there working kind of more on the technical side of things. And I think I was, I was in there for about two years before we really started talking. Does that sound right? Yeah. Yeah, and so he was, always, he was always the person, if there was something not working, he would step in and help you figure it out. But he was super quiet and um, I think ma and in some ways made himself kind of invisible. And I always say this, like to me, the most interesting people are the quiet ones in the room. And so I just, I mean, I realized there was something about him um, that I wanted to get to know better and to work with. And so over about a two or three year period, we started talking more and thinking about stories that we wanted to do, and that eventually led to the podcast. Yeah. So tell me about uh, applying for the podcast. When did you get the idea? Yeah. How did you sell it? Like, wh what did you think when she came <laughs> to you with the podcast? So, so when the podcast came out of what we were doing for KLW, KLW. and... Um, it was like we wanted to do something more storytelling, longer, and um, uh, let individuals on the, uh, listen to it on the closed circuit TV channel. That's how we was going to distribute it through the prison. And that was just what Ear Hustle was, just to be on the closed circuit TV channel inside San Quentin. And then she came in one day with a brochure from Radiotopia's PodQuest, and she was like, well, what do y'all think about this? And we was like, I yeah yeah but but I want to add a little bit to that because yeah it was a little bit more complicated than that let's let, let, let rewind a little bit yeah. because we we just we just passed over KLW and I, I, I want to get in their props right KLW so, cross currents so so let's talk about like the program that you were doing with KLW mm -hmm. yeah so we were working with about eight different guys and doing stories for KLW for the show Cross Currents. Um, and the stories you know, had to fit within the particular format. And it was really interesting. I mean, we learned a lot doing that, and I think the men really enjoyed it. Um, personally, I wanted to do stories that were more um, from the thought process of an artist and not a journalist. I'm not a journalist. And I wanted to try to do more long-form storytelling, use music, use sound, and I guess um, push ourselves. And I knew we couldn't do that within the format of cross currents. And so I just started thinking about different, different ways of telling stories and collaborating. And I talked to Erlon and Antoine Williams, who also works with us, about, yeah, about what a podcast was. And neither of them knew what it was. 
Thank you. Um, because in prison you can't hear podcasts. So trying to explain to somebody who doesn't listen to a lot of radio and certainly had never heard a podcast what the possibilities were for us. I think, I mean, I think it took a while for those guys to understand how explosive this could be and how it would um, change the kind of work we could do together. Mm -hmm. And then it, it, we, we did decide we wanted to do a podcast. It was going to air inside the prison. That is true. And then I did happen to hear about the Radiotopia. PodQuest, and I got permission from the prison to apply, and it was, a, it was a long process. It was difficult because even though we had done some radio work, we really didn't know how to make a podcast. Mm -hmm. And again, that was probably good because if we had known how hard it was going to be, I'm not sure <laughs> we would have done it. And the other thing that always makes me laugh about this is Lieutenant Robinson, who, if you listen to the podcast, you all know. Yep, Sam. Is, is a wonderful and supportive person. And after we won, um, he said to me that he let us apply because he didn't think we would ever win. <laughs> yeah, so there was a lot of doubt about it ever happening. Yeah. Were you guys surprised at how it blew up? Absolutely. I remember, th well, he wasn't. This is the difference between us. This is why we're such a good team. I, please, sir, explain. Yeah. Well, we knew, well, no, I'll take that back. We didn't know how um, much society wasn't really informed on life inside prison. Mm -hmm. We really didn't, didn't know that, but once the stories started coming together and sounding great, we was like, oh, these are gonna be cool. Mm -hmm. So um, when I think we sat down with, um, what was it, Carrie, Carrie and Hoffman Julie and Julie Shapiro, yeah, and we was asking them like, yeah, what's the success, you know? And they was like, oh yeah, y'all probably get like 50,000 downloads, and, I'm like, nah, we're going to hit a million, you know? <laughs> and I think, what was it, the first month, we hit that. Did so we in a month? In a month, we hit like 1.5 million, so. Yeah. Indeed. It's amazing. But it's, you know, it still surprises me, and I think it's actually good to go into a project like that because you're going in it for the work and to learn something, you know, and to stretch and to make new relationships, um, not going into it thinking about you know, how many people are going to listen or who's going to yeah. care. That just seems like the wrong way to start something. So for me, it continues to be a delightful surprise that people care as much as they do. Yeah. I think a lot, when I, when I think about what you guys are doing with Ear Hustle, I, I, I reflect upon a lot that it, it feels like you're navigating some really tricky waters, uh, especially when you're talking about, like, when you look at it in terms of, and so a white woman who is making it, who is not incarcerated, with a black host who is incarcerated, and questions of equity and uh, uh, privilege, but also agency, like, like how it, it, it gets talked about and who has say here and there. I'm curious like how you guys dive into those tricky places. Well, I'd like to hear Erlon talk about this, because <laughs> I mean, one of the things, I mean, we've we tried as best we could to keep it as equal as possible. Now, I understand when one person is in prison and the other person isn't, that's really difficult. But our mandate was to really create a project that would show that professional relationships are possible between people who are incarcerated and people who aren't. Um, and it's something I thought about all the time. I, I struggled with it. Um, but we ha I think we had pretty honest conversations about it. Yeah. And we, we really trusted each other. Um, 
But that's my opinion. I, I would be curious to hear a lot yeah, yeah. talk about it. I'm curious too. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think we all sat down in the beginning, me, Nigel, and Antoine, and we used to talk about it. And one of, one of the biggest things we were trying to do is more Nigel's idea was like inside and outside, you know, not just, I mean, it could have been two people inside, but we wanted a representation from society, you know, and Nigel, I think, speaks for society. And um, me, I think I spoke for the, incarcer the incarcerated people. Right, in your story selection, um, do you sometimes have to say, like, politically, within the prison, we shouldn't do this story? Or politically, um, how we talk about this story, if we do it this way, there's gonna, it's going to cause problems in the prison. Right. So, if we do it this yeah. way, it, it may not be the better storytelling way, but it's the way that we're going to keep peace in this place. I think it, it was a lot of story topics that um, we was like, nah, that's just not worth it, you know? Um, like, say, for instance, I know we used to hear a lot about, are you going to talk about how drugs get in prison? Like, nah, that's one thing we're not going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Peace to be everybody, you know. So, I mean, I am because human. I'm not. I'm. I'm not the baddest dude in town, you know. I say something like that, so it can be reactions, you know. Be, be, because what that does ultimately, if you talk about drugs in the prison, is it puts you on the bad side of both prisoners and COs. I'm not worried about the COs. I was just about the prisoners. Okay, so you're just worried about the prisoners. <laughs> yeah, I, well, see, I'm. I'm worried about like if you if you discover something. And maybe a CEO is taking part in it. Mm -hmm. uh, right. You know, I don't know. Yeah, I'm still it'd be not saying that they are. Well, I mean, you know, but it happens. They might be humanitarians. They might be. Yeah. But um, um, yeah, that was it. Was just certain topics. Was like, uh, you know, we got better stories. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, they, they can hear about that in the news. Right. I mean, we're not muckrakers. That's not our. I, I remember when we started, there was a little bit of criticism that we laughed in the podcast, or that um, we weren't doing more overtly political stories. And I actually feel that laughing together in a podcast and telling the kinds of stories we do is actually incredibly political. Absolutely. And, Indeed. Um, yeah. But it's political in our own way. Yeah. And one of the things I'm really proud of with the podcast is that we bring our talents to it. We don't try to be like other people. We don't do what we think we are supposed to do. We do what we care about and what we can stand behind. And I think when you can do this kind of project with, with that integrity, you're heading in the right direction. Not that there aren't pitfalls, not that we have, don't question ourselves or make mistakes, but um, I think we tr we're, we're pretty honest about what we do. We don't claim to be something we're not. Sure. So this next clip that I want to play, um, this next clip, uh, it, it struck me really hard because I read this book recently. Um, it's actually my second time reading it, but I read this book called uh, The Ghetto Side. And it talked about um, the high murder rate in Los Angeles in the 80s and the 90s. Um, basically the environment that, that you came out of. So let's hear that clip. Clip two, please. The murder I committed occurred on September the 7th, 1985. Four days later, I was at my homeboy's house when the phone rings. Hello? 
and it was somebody I knew who was telling me that my mother and brother had just been murdered. What? Hell no. I knew right away that it was retaliation for me killing Stanford Bursey. I attempted to call my home. No one answered. Damn, I just started crying. It was unbelievable. I kept thinking in my mind, I hope it's not true. I hope it's not true. Please don't let it be true. Please don't let it be true. But in my heart, I knew that it was true. It was the most devastating moment in my life. my understanding that the rival gang members, what they did was they went to my parents' home and when my younger brother, who was 15 years old at the time, David, when he answered the door, they shot him. And when my mother came out of her room to see what was going on, they shot her as well. It was very shocking on the community because here it was, you had a church-going mother and son who was murdered, innocent blood, who had nothing to do with a gang, and they were murdered. Because prior to that time, family members weren't involved. You were living in L.A. when this happened. Right. And even though you were a teenager, you remember it. Exactly. So it marked a big change in gang culture. Hell yeah. A hell of a change, because if individuals didn't know gang banging was real, when this happened, they knew it was real. The old unwritten rule of not going after families of gang members was suddenly a thing of the past. In my mind, it didn't make no difference anymore what the rules were. Now that they were involved in families, I'm going to involve families too. Two things come to mind when I hear that clip. One, like as an audio producer, amazing. Like the way you guys laid it out. That last phone ring, like as a listener, I was just sitting there like, oh my God, oh my God. And I know what's happening here from the production side, and you just pulled it off. It was just nailed the landing. It was beautiful. But the second thing that comes to mind that, Erlon, I would really love you to expand on is that, like, the year that he's talking about, 1985, over 700 people were murdered in Los Angeles at that, at that point. 700 people in a relatively small area. Um, and I think it's hard for a lot of your listeners to wrap their head around what life was like back then. Can you talk a little bit about like where you came from? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up on the east side of Los Angeles, uh, south central Los Angeles. And, <laughs> and in my neighborhood, it was like, I would say it was sectioned off as far as gangs, you know? And, and I remember later, later on, my mother was like, well, what happened? What, you know, what went wrong? I said, it was just the area we moved in. You know, so you had um, individuals like me growing up that was in the sports, that was in all that, but at the same time, you had outside forces coming in, feeling you a part of this gang, you know, and, and, and whether it's fighting or whatever the case may be, uh, that's what was happening. So you had a lot of individuals, even me growing up with my homeboys, it wasn't like we were in a gang in the beginning. We were just partners, you know, and 
I think one by one, everybody just started just converting into the gang. And uh, yes, at that time, it was a lot of killings involved. You know, 1985, uh, 1985, 86, I think when the crack cocaine area hit the streets, it got real bad, real bad. Yeah. So it was like, you know, wear the wrong color, it might be all bad. Um, it was, you know, going to funerals, seeing your homies get killed, or, you know, uh, hearing about your homies getting killed and going to their funerals and just looking at it like, this is crazy. And, and, and the story that uh, Joker tells us there, right. like you remember that story because right. That that marks a shift. A shift, yeah, because you didn't you didn't hear that, or you didn't hear um, um, someone taking it to that extreme. And uh, it was the I think it was the Rolling Sixties that um, took it to that extreme, and that's changed like a lot of stuff. Like uh, I think we were talking about it uh, when we were doing the episode, uh, and we was like, man, at that time you had people was like, I ain't with this. This is, you know, I'm done with this, you know, and you have people that was going full fledged and then you have people that want to top what they did. You know, it was just a mentality. <laughs> so, uh, in 1985, I was, I don't know, I'm not going to tell my age. In 1985, <laughs> I was uh, in my early, early teens. Um, right. But I remember really clearly, like, just, it, it still sticks with me today that on CNN they, they said that like the average life expectancy for a young black man was 21 years old. I remember being, I remember that because when I eventually hit 21, I felt like I made it, like, like, like I had gotten to that, right. to that spot. And a lot of reasons for that statistic was because of what was happening in inner cities like Los Angeles and Chicago and, and so forth. So that's like, the specter that like you lived in directly, um, me growing up in Florida, but being an <coughs> African American boy, um, had some connection to it, right? Like or or, or knew. Yeah, I think it's the same in it. every city. Right, I right. Think in every city. I'm I'm curious, Nigel. Like, did you know anything about that at that time? No, no. I mean, that's not my life, and and. You know, I, that's something I always acknowledge in the podcast. No, I don't come from that experience. And as I said earlier, I don't try to, to speak to things or work with things that aren't authentic to me. So, it, for example, making that story, um, my job was to really listen and be a compassionate, open listener and to have to get Joker, Shakur, to relive the most painful experience of his life. Yeah, I, I don't ask you that question to put you on the spot. I ask you that question in the sense of, like, this is what America does. We t especially, like, back then when we didn't have social media the way we do now, right? right? Where we can look into people's lives and kind of understand what's going on. But back then, like, it was very segregated, our knowledge, our really intimate knowledge about these hard things, which I think is one of the brilliant things of what Ear Hustle does is that it brings people from the outside into this experience that they normally wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Right. I hope so. Thank you. And, yes. and hopefully starts to bridge the disconnect, which is what you're getting at. Exactly. Right, that's the desire. I do want to, can I just say one creative, I want to talk a little bit about the creative aspects of putting that, is yep. that okay? Um, so 
Um, we don't do stories that sound that way anymore, I realize, and this was one of the few stories we did that had a single narrator, a single character go through the whole story. But um, Antoine Williams, hearing that again, did such a beautiful job, and he was working, he works with Pat Masidi Miller, and I love the way they sonically crafted that. You really feel like you're there, and it's not in, in an open bur overly burdened way. Like you were saying, you're waiting to know what happens with that right. phone ringing. And that's one of the things that's so beautiful about doing a podcast is that you can experiment creatively like that. And I just think that's a good example of it. And it's also like a, a, a beautiful example of, of restraint because you could have gone yeah. way over the top. Which is where we started. Right. right. You know, and I mean, I think that's the great thing about learning to edit is that you, you go way too far and then you, you pull back and you pull back and you pull back and you realize that less becomes super elegant. And I think in that one, Shakur even came back when he heard it. His one, the one thing that he, he was happy about and he appreciated is that um, when Antoine Williams did the scene, he didn't have gunshots in it. Yeah. He, he yeah. Was, he was it was like, noticeable that, it, that the gunshots weren't right. there. Yeah. And yeah. He, he was like, man, I, I appreciate that, yeah. man. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the craft. So how, uh, when you guys decide to do a story, how do you go about it? Like, what, what's the first thing that happens? Pitch sessions. The whiteboard. The whiteboard. <laughs> can can y'all can y'all can y'all give us a peek on like what's happening next season? Just, just sure. Yeah, <laughs> can we take like one little story from next season uh, and like 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 lay it out for me? Okay. It's just one. Yeah. Which 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 one? Um. Uh, well. Um. It's just one. Okay. Well, how about the? Well, see, me me being how in the, the mailroom. Huh? How about the mailroom? Uh, tell me about the mailroom. Okay. Well, th what's interesting? Wait, 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 wait. Y'all just had a whole conversation in language I don't understand. It was like. That's how partners talk. Okay. Um, well, what's interesting this season is because obviously Erlon's out, there's a huge shift. Indeed. There's a huge shift in the stories we're going to tell because in season four, we're going to be connecting. We're going to still be doing inside stories, and there's a new host that I'll be working with, but we'll also be doing stories about outside and, and transition, you know, the transition right. from, from prisons outside. So, I mean, I think we're still working on that. And the reason Erlon isn't completely up on the mailroom stories is because there's some stories that will be 90% inside and some stories that will be more on the outside. But the mail story, which is something that's in the forefront of my mind because we're really digging into it right now, is talking about the importance of mail and how it's a lost art, but in prison, you know, people who are incarcerated are probably keeping the U.S. postal system going, right? Because they're the only people, yeah. or one of the few groups of people that write letters. So the the the, um, the story will follow one guy um, through his process of meeting a woman through the mail and seeing what happens when they actually get to meet in person. Mm. Yes. And so, <laughs> how did that pitch happen? It was just like, we want to do something about the mail. We want to do something about the mail. So let's just like throw it out there. And we try and do, to find. Do you, do you like talk to, do you just let the, the population of San Quentin know, hey, we're doing a story on mail? We do in a way. So yeah. we'll, we'll talk. Um, Erlon and Antoine and, and Pat and I and uh, Yaya and some other guys that work with us will throw up a bunch of stories. And when we get one that's interesting to us, we will then look for what we call the mule, which is going to be the person who carries Carry the main it. story. 
That's I, a harsh term. I could call him. And the, I don't, don't want to be a mule. No, the mule is the no, most the beloved character. You see, people, I guess, don't respect the mule. The mule is I, really no, important. No, I don't want to be a mule. Okay, but it's okay. <laughs> if we don't have the mule, we don't have a story. Okay. So, And then we, I don't know how we came up with that name either. Which one? The mule. Then we realize that we, we've got to find great characters. And so then, you know, Erlon, he doesn't do it now, but he used to we go out to the yard and just start talking to people. Um, the prison is a, is a, is a village. It's, it's a closed society. Right. So it's, it's very easy to talk to people. People are interested. People want to get involved. And then we started putting ads in the San Quentin newspaper. And that got things out to a, a larger crowd. Um, up into death row because it's hard to get there. So mm -hmm. that's how we can get guys from death row to participate. And now we use that, um, we're gonna be using that to get to people at other prisons. So I don't know if that answered your question, but mail, mail is. Yeah. Where it's Maybe at right you now. know inside on that. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so, so let me ask you this. Like when, when you were in San Quentin, um, season one trying to get people to talk, was it harder or, or did, I guess the question is, did it get easier to talk to people as they began to understand what you were doing? Um, it did probably like season three no, or season two, that. you think season oh, two? Yeah. So yes. people, what I learned is that people that had been incarcerated for a certain amount of time didn't want to talk. Uh, they had this thing where they didn't talk to the media. And I used to do everything to convince them I used to even be like, hey, man, you're going to be a statistic, man. You better let somebody hear your story. You know, I used to try to, <laughs> I used to try my best to do all kind of little things. But I used to also put up um, posters on yeah, the wall inside all the buildings, and it would be whatever the topic is. So then we would get people to come down. I will tell you one thing that really changed is when guys inside, and, and I'm only talking about men because we're at San Quentin, when guys inside started hearing from their families, about your hustle. Do you know your hustle? Do you know your hustle? My daughter listens to it. Her friends yeah. listen to it. And then I think people started to realize this is a way I can actually connect with my family and they can hear about my life and I don't feel so far away and I don't feel so invisible. So it was getting it out there that I think started to make it easier. And obviously the more stories we did, I think the more the men inside talked about the experience of being in a mm -hmm. story and how much it, it benefited them um, emotionally, creatively, um, spiritually. And especially when we start playing them like on the closed circuit yeah. TV channel. Yes. And that's when everybody started coming out like, oh man, that was cool, man. Yeah. Or having some type of opinion. And sure. then they'll come pitch their story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? And, Did and, you get some good pitches and, out of it? No, it's always their life story. It's not like. Oh. Yeah. It's two, like two things that like, we will never do. We only right? go for a moment yeah. of your life, not your <laughs> life. No right? life story. <laughs> No life story and nothing about your yeah. crime. I mean, those are, two, you know, not crime-centric. Yeah. Um, so this next clip, uh, when I heard this clip, I, I don't know, like I totally like was with you the whole way uh, because I've been in an interview where you have to like do some hard questions, ask some some things that that feel uncomfortable, um, and and. I don't know, maybe, I don't know if the listeners got it how much I got it, because as an interviewer, a person who has to ask people really hard questions sometimes, it is the worst thing in the world. Like, I hate doing yeah. it. Even people I don't like, I hate asking them hard questions. Yeah. Um, and so, it, the thing here is not that it's in San Quentin. The thing here is the interview itself. Like, if you had had this interview with somebody on the street, it still would have been hard. Let's hear clip three, please. <laughs> 
really appreciate you doing the story, and you speak so beautifully, and, but there's something I have to talk to you about, okay. and it's going to be a little bit hard. Okay. So I'm just going to be very blunt with you. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. So we do stories about life inside prison. We, we don't really do stories about people's crimes at all. And so I found out what you're in prison for. I was hoping I could talk to you a little bit about it. Um. <laughs> How do we tell stories and leave out that, that part? Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I try to be like open and honest about my past and uh, the, the things that I've done, including what I've done to get to prison. I don't know, I think the scope of the, the number of people that, that could possibly listen to this, I'm just really nervous about, about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. While you're thinking, can I tell you some of the things that are just going through my mind about Absolutely. it? It might help you. Absolutely. So one of the things is that I really believe that people change. Like, I take you as the man you are in front of me, and I listen very carefully to how you talked about your relationship and how much you thought about it and how painful and joyous the whole experience was for you. And so when people listen to the story, that's what I want them to take away, that here's this person who's in a difficult situation. They've, they eventually met this person. They fell in love just like anyone else would. It didn't work out, unfortunately. You end thinking, like, here's this guy who's very self-actualized. And then what worries me is, like, so people will leave with this very, like, mm, I, I love this guy. Skewed view I love of this, things. Yeah, not skewed, not skewed. But then someone will research you and be like, did they just feed me a bunch of but if we could just talk about it and come to some understanding about what's our responsibility, what's your responsibility. So I'm trying to, like, I'm trying to partner with you here. How do, how do we present this? Oh, <laughs> you guys are killing me. <laughs> uh, um, here you guys are. Poking, poking, and prodding. Well, let me ask you um, this: Do you feel like we're being unfair? Trying to make you do this? No, I don't feel you're being unfair at all, and I don't ultimately know what my hesitancy is. Um, so, on December seventh, nineteen ninety-four, I murdered my ex-girlfriend, the mother of my now twenty-five-year-old daughter. So how, like, when I see you and I talk to you, like, it's so hard for me to imagine. Yeah. Um, not for me. I'm not, I'm not that same person. It's, and it's sort of, like, I know what I did. I know how I felt back then, and, and I know what it's taken to get to where I am now. Um, Hearing, hearing you say that, right? Like you, you don't know what it's been like, and and me sitting here today is a different person, and you didn't know that person back then. Uh, that's one of the reasons, I think, why, with the exception of today, for some reason, I've never, 
once I started, once I figured out that I didn't want to be that person anymore, uh, that was the moment I decided to be honest with myself and other people about all the things I've did, I've done, in, including, including killing my ex-girlfriend. Uh, so, when you met the your wife, did you have to talk with her about why are you? Did she like? How does that conversation happen? Yeah. Uh, so she was, yes, we did talk about it and she knows everything. Uh, she knows all the details and we talked about it at length and, uh, and yeah, like she needed to process a lot of stuff around that. Right. And she had a lot of questions. Um, and it wasn't a pleasant conversation. I didn't expect it to be. So yeah. The way you guided him through that, uh, it sounds masterful. But I know inside you had to be churning with a ton of emotions. Yeah. It, it, it was masterful. I'm just saying that, like, I, I know internally, what were you going through? I was through? dying. I mean, I was scared. I, not that he was going to hurt me, but I was terrified. I was scared to put somebody in that emotional position. I fretted about it the night before. I couldn't sleep. But I also knew that with this story, the story was about falling in love, and that we couldn't tell that story about his present love without talking about how he got to prison. Like, ethically, we just had, we had to do it. And so I didn't know where it was going to go. And as I'm listening to that, what I hear is somebody struggling to ask these questions and having no idea what's going to happen, and trusting that the person sitting across from me can bear the questions and I can bear the answers. And together, like I say, we're going to partner in this and we're going to get through it. Mm -hmm. But I mean, my, I'm sure my hands were sweaty. Um, but I felt safe. I feel very safe in the media lab when I'm in there. It's such, it's a very creative space. So I, and I, safe space, I don't really like that word, but I felt like we were in a very safe place to have this conversation. And I was, um, honored that he would talk about it, and I feel like I'm a better person and a better storyteller for having gone through it, but it was f hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, Erlon, uh, when you got out, you guys made like a really small podcast, which was great. Right, right. Uh, right. But then the next big podcast was Bittersweet. Um, and I met your moms tonight. Yeah. Lovely woman. Hey, yeah. mom, mom. Where was that? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm here to tell you, you got me, because at the beginning of that episode, your mom comes in, and I'm like, ooh, yeah, we're going to have a good, happy episode. Cue uh, the next one, please. Hi, I'm Alice Woods. Erlon's mom. The following episode of Ear Hustle contains language and content that may not be appropriate for all listeners. She sounds so happy. <laughs> That's you getting out. I'm happy at this point. I'm telling you. Yeah, so, so. I'm narrating hey. my emotions through this. I'm good. I'm good okay. now. We're going to get to sit next to each other in the car. I'm like, oh, we're together. Yeah. Are you hungry? Am yes. I hungry? I was, but I'm... Oh, hold on. This is... This is... Yeah, this, this is, is what we right? don't get to see. Yeah. 
Indeed, that's a damn good view. You don't get to see the water in San Quentin. All righty. Which right. is crazy because you're, you're surrounded by it. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready to see it gets smaller. Uh, at this point, I'm like, man, I wish I was there. I want to buy him his first meal. That's what I'm feeling right now, right? I'm, 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 I'm so hopeful. Thank you for giving me hope. Yeah, and then popping it. Okay. But, but that's later. I got to put the seatbelt on. Yeah. I say I was gonna watch the yeah. place get little, but I ain't even turning around. <laughs> oh, yeah. My favorite word today, I think that's always my very interesting. It, it's a very interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. Very interesting. You know what's interesting? What? You look thinner. <laughs> Do I? Yeah. It's like the, the prison clothes. The prison clothes are really unflattering. You look um, <laughs> Anyway, you Well, look I'm still about 2.30. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we can fade it out. So, like, I'm listening to this. And I, I'm so excited that you got out. I'm so happy that you guys are in the car together. Y'all were excited when he got out, right? Indeed. How many of y'all heard this episode? <laughs> all right, so we're all excited. We're all happy. The name of the episode, though, is Bittersweet. Why we got to do bitter? <laughs> Like, bruh, you just got out. And then it turns to the story of, of your brother, which, like, um, ever since uh, hearing it, like, it's just, it's, it's just sat with me. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm holding your brother, his girlfriend, and, and, and your nephew in my heart. Um, and so your brother, uh, and we should keep it just to brother, nephew, and girlfriend, just for the sake of names, right? Um, your brother's nephew, who, or son, excuse me, your, your brother's son, your, your nephew, who you raised for a, a short period of time. Short period of time. Yeah, a short period of time. My mother uh, ended up raising him. Yeah, your, and your mother raised him most of the time. But at one point, um, both of his parents were not in jail, and then his mom got arrested, and his dad, your brother, uh, got arrested. And this is him telling his son that he's going to go to jail. Next clip, please. Man, I can't, how can I tell him? You know, I was his last hope. You know, I was his last, you know, his everything. So how can I tell him this? And I drug, I dragged it out just like I did with his mama until finally I had to tell him. Once again, he broke down. He said, I feel like I'm out here by myself. And you know that tore my soul. That that uh, <clears throat> knocked me back. Man. You know. When I was listening to that, um, all I could think of is that. So you're, you know, the, the audience knows, but I should say for the audience that that is listening that may not know, is that your brother was with you in San Quentin. Correct. And so you are leaving San Quentin and leaving him behind. And this is the thing that's weighing on you as you're driving out to this freedom. Um, was this episode harder to make than all the other ones? Because this one feels, uh, in, in, in a, through most of the seasons, like I feel like there's a great balance of the two of you, right? I feel like there's a great balance of you as a host. And, hearing the stories of the other men. And I get to learn about you through that, right? But this episode, like, it feels like you've got the world on your shoulders and you're carrying it in this one. 
Well, I think, I think it was more like, when we did this episode, it was a lot of things that me and my brother, even though we were in a cell together, we didn't talk about that much. And my nephew was one of them. I mean, it was, it was still hard for him, you know, because at the end of the day, we all feel we abandoned him. You know, so um, doing this episode, I was able to get like insight on how my brother thought, how Tyra thought, you know. Um, Tyra's mother. Tyra's, uh, yeah, his mother. And just to hear their perspective, because none of us, we, we, we was all in prison, so none of us had the chance to really just get to just let it out or to grieve or, so in that episode, I was able to like really just have this uh, conversation, you know, we had this space where we was able to just talk about my nephew, and I personally wanted to do something um, with my nephew um, before, I want to say before I got out of prison, um, because, you know, he was shot 19 times, this wasn't no big media thing, and nobody knew what happened to Tyler, so it was just me just doing a story to me. Just yeah, can I say that we talked about doing a story about his nephew for a long time, right. I bet a year. And so it wasn't like this just came at the spur of the moment and it seemed like the right time to tell that story mm -hmm. and to really make an episode about Erlan's family. And it is, it's very different than any other episode. And I know it's jarring to start with the joy of him getting out, but the reality is that there's this deep sorrow that follows him and so hard for his family. Storytelling-wise, it was brilliant um, because it, it, the, the joy is what everybody came for to bring you in. But then there's this deeper story um, that really resonates and, and holds you there. I want to move to the seventh clip, please. Let's hear the seventh audio clip, please. I mean, you, what can you do but blame yourself? Yeah, f the police and all of that, but I'm, I got to, you know, I'm guilty. You know, I'm, I let him down, you know, I let him down in, in more than one way. And when you, 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 you sit back and you think about what your child is going through mentally, through all of this, it's devastating. It's devastating. Because I put him in that position. I put him in that predicament. I put him in that, I put him in that situation to be grown before his time. Was there any way to process that? No, 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 no. That, that was it for me. That was when I really just tried to kill myself. Like, God, I didn't want to be there no more. Because all the nice stuff, it was great, but I can't see my son. <laughs> and they told me my security level was high. It came with all these, but I hadn't had a write-up in like 12 years. You won't let me see my son. <laughs> I work for you, I do everything. I do everything I'm supposed to do, and you won't let me see my son. I was angry. Since the system didn't allow you to do anything, how did you memorialize Tyler? I didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't do it. Not yet? No. Do you feel like you've memorialized Tyler with, with this episode? 
I believe I did. I believe we all did. Um, you, uh, you, you did, because he's living in my heart right now. Like, when right. I listen to that audio. Right. I mean, so losing Tyler the way we lost him, I remember I, I called my mom and she told me that Tyler was killed in Long Beach. And, you know, I heard it. I heard exactly what she said, but, you know, the only thing that registered was Long Beach because I talked to Tyler the day before. He was in Long Beach. The kill part was like final, so that I just, I just didn't put it together like that. But that was that was like, like the hardest news, to hear that. Nineteen years old, you know, unarmed, running. It's the same thing we was hearing in the news all the time, you know. And um, the first thing that was done was his name was vilified, carjacking suspect killed, as if he was carjacking somebody at the time, right. you know. So. It was hard, it was hard. Mm -hmm. Nigel, in the work um, that you've been doing in the prisons and you know, reflecting back on that hard interview that you had, um, and also like I've listened to a couple interviews that you've given and you've talked about like you've had to work with people that have done some really horrible things mm -hmm. and how you have learned to take people where they are instead of where they were. Yeah. But I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you say to the, the, the family members of, of victims? Right. Like, how do you communicate over this, you know, Grand Canyon of grief? Yeah. I think it, it's really difficult, and I'm not sure I know how to. I mean, when people ask me about this, the thing I always say is that, I've never been the victim of a crime, of a violent crime, nor somebody I love, and I have no way of understanding how that would feel until I'm in that situation. And I want people who are victims of, of crime to understand that we are not diminishing their experience and we care about their experience. And this season, we are going to try to do some stories that deal more with that. It's, I, I wish I had a great answer for you, but I don't. I think it's a really difficult difficult thing. The only thing I can hope is that our stories can, can, can help people start to think beyond that pain and that there is a possibility of connecting with another person. And through doing that really hard work, you may get to a place that is emotionally spectacular, and, but painful to get there, but rewarding. So I think it's about growth, but I, I don't know. I, 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 just don't have a, a packaged answer for you, but I think about it and I worry about it. And when we started the podcast, I expected to have more confrontation from people who had been victims of horrible crimes. But what's been interesting is that we've received a lot of emails and letters from people who have lost loved ones to murder um, or been victims of pretty horrible crimes, and they talk about how important the podcast is for them. And so that gives me some hope that there's a way to connect Right, these two experiences. Um, and then when I talk about it, I think, well, you know, Erlon's been the victim of a violent crime, right? Yeah. So people can be, I guess, perpetrators and victims and can see both sides. Absolutely. Erlon, you, you talked a little bit um, in another interview about being a part of restorative justice circles. Um, do you think about that kind of work uh, in, in, within the work that you're doing right now in the podcast space? Well, I think, um, um, I do, I, I think when people hear it, um, 
hopefully, my point of view, hopefully they see people's growth. They see people are not the same people. Um, and um, with one of the organizations, Restore Justice, we used to do the symposiums inside the prison where you sit with the offenders of crime as well as survivors of crime. And you have these um, long dialogues, you know, and you just try to reach each other and find some type of answers or just come to some type of conclusions. But um, hopefully, like with the podcast, they see that people are pretty much different or was thinking a certain way at one point in their life, and that was at that point in their life, and people have changed for the better, I think. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> And people like, like, I always say, like, people like Nigel and the rest of the volunteers that go into prison and help out, they like on the front line of public safety because they uh, assist individuals with their, you know, thinking and um, bring about a lot of change, I believe. So, I'm going to open it up to the audience for questions, but my, my last question to you is, uh, what's next? <laughs> oh, man, we, we, we crisscrossing around, man. Um, um, continuing to get these stories, man. I'm doing it from the outside. The reentry aspect is just like the inside. It's, it's, when you get out, it's, it's rough. So some people get it rough. Mine was smoother, you know. Um, but a lot of people get out and struggling, you know, and there's three things that, that I see that matters when a person um, is released from prison, and that's housing, jobs, and transportation, yeah. you know? <laughs> so, yeah. those, a job, job first, though. Yeah. You know, if people get hired, you know. And I think also for us, um, trying to get into other prisons to do stories, because I always want to be very clear that our stories about, are about San Quentin. And San Quentin is not like every other prison. And so we really need to get into different sorts of prisons, and we need to hear from women. And um, that yes. is, that's one of my personal goals. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. All right, so at this point, I'm going to turn it over to the audience. Throw your hands up so we can see you. This question's in the orchestra towards your right, about halfway back. Hi, um, I assigned several episodes of Ear Hustle to my freshman sociology students. And it was uh, enlightening, uh, it humanized uh, the men, it was really wonderful. One particular episode, uh, bird baths in a lockbox, <laughs> and the discussion of deep end, or back end fishing was uh, particularly interesting to them. Two things came out of that for them. One was the resourcefulness, the ingenuity, of people when they're in a tough situation like that. But the other part of it was the inhumanity of it. You had to resort to that to get the simple things that you needed and wanted. And I wonder if you could say something about that. Back in fishing. Back end. Back in, that's what I'm saying. I, uh, I would like to say it's a deal, but. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, I think uh, individuals, so usually when you're doing something like that, it's because you're on lockdown and you're really trying to figure out if you throw a line out the door, the officer may come by, take what's on the line, and um, you're, you're thinking about, okay, well, we need to do this so they can't see the line. So individuals do go through their toilets because they all connect. Um, it's, it's bad. I've, I've never done it. 
it, it really wasn't that serious for me, you know. But um, I had a celly that was doing it, and I think you have two things. Somebody really wants something, and somebody really wants something to do. You know, um, because, you know, when you're locked inside of a cell 24 hours a day, you're, you get boring, you know, and you find some type of activities to get involved with. And I might have forgot your question. I, I actually, <laughs> I want to respond. I know you asked about the inhumanity of it, oh, but what I wanted indeed. to respond to was the, the comment about being creative. And I'm, I'm a visual artist. That's what I do when I'm not doing a podcast. And what always strikes me inside talking with the men inside is the creativity. And I think a lot of the guys in there think like artists, and artists are problem solvers. And that's what people in prison have to do because they aren't given all the resources they should have. They have to solve that problem. So I know it's, it's horrible and depressing, but I also think about the creativity and the amazement of the human mind to solve these problems and make a life that they can make, that, that's bearable. Yeah. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for this presentation this evening. Um, I did some work years ago when I was in college with uh, a juvenile hall, and that was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. And I also will have to say that I was one of the first people to buy one of your T-shirts, and I've been wearing it all over town. So, <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. My question is this. Um, there's such a tendency to say, wow, you were in prison for 21 years, and here you are on the outside, you're a celebrity, a lot of people know who you are, people, uh, a lot of adulation and so forth, but I have to think that that carries with it um, difficulties as well. And my question is, um, uh, ha have some of those difficulties started to settle in? And if so, um, what's that like on the outside? A again, from the outside, it would seem, wow, this is such a euphoric experience, and yet there's a lot more to it, it seems to me. Well, um I spent a total of 27 years of my life in prison. And um, getting out the first time, it was very difficult trying to find jobs. And, and um, I got back into the crime element. Uh, getting out the second time, um, I think your mindset changed. When you do a lengthy amount of time or any amount of time, it all depends on the person, your mindset changes. So um, I, I think I realized um, in my sentence that uh, I had to start thinking about what if they do let me out one day? Um, so I started thinking about uh, what will I do in the future? I started you know, getting my future plans in place in prison so when I did get out, I would be in a great position and I wouldn't be in the same position I was in previously. So me getting out, I think the hardest thing for me in society is doing these stories. That is hard. That's, that's been the hardest thing, the hardest challenge I think I've had since I've been out of prison. I, I got out to a totally different um, experience than most people that get out of prison. So it hasn't really been too hard for me. But you're not giving up on those stories, right? Huh? You're not giving up on the stories. No, no. Okay, just making sure. Uh, this question's from the balcony all the way to your left. Hi, um, I was wondering if there's anything you miss about prison. Um, nothing. 
<laughs> and on that, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for your hustle. Thank you. Good, good, good one, man. Good one. You've been listening to Ear Hustle's Nigel Poor and Erlon Woods. This program was recorded at the Sydney Goldstein Theatre in San Francisco on March 29, 2019. These broadcasts are produced by City Arts and Lectures in association with KQED Public Radio, San Francisco. Executive producers are Kate Goldstein-Briar and Holly Mulder-Wallen. Director of Communications and Design is Alexandra Washkin. Production and Communications Assistant is Juliet Gelfman-Randazzo. The Post-Production Director is Nina Thorson. Sydney Goldstein Theatre Technical Director, Steve Eckerd. The Recording Engineer is Jim Bennett. Theme music composed and performed by Pat Gleason. The founding producer is Sidney Goldstein. To attend a live programme or for a list of upcoming guests, visit our website at cityarts.net. That's cityarts.net.